Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new episode of Stories from Space Podcast, where your host, Matthew Williams, examines the history of human spaceflight, the breakthroughs that revolutionized our understanding of the universe and our place in it, and the brave individuals who work tirelessly to advance the frontiers of our understanding. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. The authors acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the traditional unceded lands of the Lekwungen peoples. Hello and welcome back to Stories from Space. I'm your host, Matt Williams, and with me today is a very special guest, famed science communicator and educator Janet Ivey. She is the host and co-creator of Janet's Planet. She is a Buzz Aldrin Share Science Ambassador, and her work in STEMs and space education and outreach has earned her 12 regional Emmys, five Gracie Allen Awards, and is also the recipient of the STEM Florida Award. Welcome everyone, Janet Ivey. Janet, welcome aboard. Well, thank you, thank you. It's always embarrassing for that like bullet point list of things to happen and you're like, it's just what happens when you stick around long enough. <laughs> and modest, oh yeah. <laughs> so yes, Naturally, I've wanted to have you on here for a while because, of course, what you do, it parallels what I hope to do with this podcast and with other writing endeavors that I've got going on now. So my first question, what brought you to this point in your life there where you're now effectively an ambassador for space? (laughs) So I have to trace it back, and this is one of my favorite things to do. Uh, I was 10 years old in 1978, fifth grade, and the brilliant, amazing, my kind of North Star of a teacher, Miss Ernestine Yarbrough-Jones, she was only in her second year of teaching, and she and Miss Carolyn Davis in their uh, amazing bell bottoms brought a telescope to a Friday night uh, I'm, I guess it might have been a PTA meeting. It might have been a bat, like an elementary basketball game. I have no idea. I had no interest in whatever was going on in the gym. I just wanted mm-hmm. to be out with this, uh, these two ladies with a telescope. And uh, Miss Ernestine, beautiful African-American hero of mine, uh, showed me stars and constellations. And I immediately thought, I want to be like her. I want to know things like her. And then then in the spring of that year, she assigned us all a planet. Uh, Funny enough, it was Saturn. So probably the reason Janet's planet logo looks a lot like Saturn. Uh, So I can trace my love of space and astronomy back to that class. I can also trace my kind of confidence in my own smarts to that class she would come by every friday and whisper something that was meant for your ear and your ear alone and she would say things like you know janet science isn't just for the boys it is for girls too do you hear me or you've done great work this week and so she she made learning so much fun and so she she might ask you to write i just found these they're really quite elementary, I assure you. But I literally have a paper written, a little story that I wrote about going to Mars. And you had to use all of your spelling words and they had to be spelled correctly. You had to have at least your science right if you were mentioning characteristics of the planet. But everything else could be a flight of fancy. So when I think about where did my love of space and science happen, that was the moment. Age 10, Miss Ernestine Yarbrough's classroom. 
The good news is along the way, even in high school, I had teachers, um, especially Algebra 2 in my chemistry teacher, Mr. Hughes, who was like, you know, you're not great at this, but you do have a very interesting way of looking at things. So keep at it. So I wasn't, I wasn't like the A plus student in those classes, but I enjoyed the exercise. Now, so there was that, but I was also music, drama, and theater. So there was that equal part. I was in the band. I was going to perform all these things that I also loved all of my creative arts. And I think that what again brought me to kids is after I graduate Belmont University, I garner this job in Nashville, Tennessee at Opryland called the Opryland Kids Club. They go, hey, Janet, it's going to be with a costume character and a puppet and some kids. And it's, and I'm, you know, I'm out of college and I'm like, hey, a great way to make money and performing isn't like nowhere in my life at that point. I thought my dream job is going to be performing within four kids. Lo and behold, I walk into rehearsal on May of 1992 and fell smack dab in love. And along the way, realized that there was a bit of magic with the way that I enjoyed working with those kids and the way the kids responded to me. And about four or five years in, I was like, this job is ending. And what else could I do in this realm? And I didn't just want to sing and do songs about space or science, and I wasn't even sure, but I started looking around. I was like, hmm, what interests me? And the only people in the late 90s that were doing science were Bill Nye the Science Guy and Beekman's World, and Beekman's kind of like sidekick was the Daffy Girl who didn't all, you know what I mean? And I was like, wait a minute, hold up. Where's the female role model in science? I'll plant my flag there. And so people had always called me Interplanet Janet from Schoolhouse Rock. And uh, I couldn't have that, but nobody had the trademark for Janet's Planet. So I struck out, paid for the trademark. Not a real plan of how to go about getting there, just that I was going to. And then opportunities opened up on public television. We produced interstitials. And, you know, it's like even yesterday I was talking with Vizio about some possibilities of needing more space and science content. So the gentleman who brought me to the table for this meeting, he was like, Janet, he goes, we've been trying to do this since the early 2000s. And I was like, yeah, but Bill, space is finally ready. The kind of like the, the public is ready for space science education to be a thing. When I first started out, it was still just a curiosity and a cool way maybe to get kids interested. I still think space is the best, most enormous, beautiful way to get kids interested in STEM subjects. It's kind of like, hey, walk through here. Let's take a look at space and how we're interrelated to things, kiddos. And that's their path to getting introduced and excited about science, technology, engineering, art, and math. But um, yeah, so it started when I was young. Um, used to stargaze with my aunt. I think also my aunt Pat was also looking for UFOs, but that was a fun time, nevertheless, <laughs> in oh, West yeah. Tennessee. So God bless Aunt Pat for standing out in the middle of the field at night looking at stars and looking for UFOs or whatever with me. But um, yeah, it's just been a lifelong love. And I wish I could tell you that I had some supreme, like great like business plan that managed to do something. All I can say to anybody listening out there who's wanting to do space education or have a seat at the table is just show up. 
email somebody, go on LinkedIn, find somebody you want to know or emulate or work with and send them an email. Um, I did to Richard Godwin back in 2008, found my way to my first ever National Space Society's International Space Development Conference where I met Space Florida ended up producing a documentary on microgravity for them because they had a mandate from the Stephen Hawking Foundation to take microgravity to Florida classrooms. And uh, again, all because of an email on LinkedIn, even back in 2008. So uh, those mechanisms work. And I always say the people that you know, are out there that will say yes because they are always looking for like-minded people who can share the message and push it out there to that next generation. Mm -hmm. Well, personally, I think your story is more interesting because it's like, yeah, there was no grand plan, just the sense of purpose and things happened. I mean, that's that's what the good stories really are. I mean, <laughs> I mean, to hear someone say, well, this is what I planned for and this is the meticulous process and things worked out accordingly. But, and, yeah. it's like, wow, I always boring. think about that. <laughs> I always think about the author of The Martian. He was speaking at a Human to Mars summit and somebody was like, you know, he wrote this thing and had, it was basically 99 cents as an, you know, an ebook somewhere. And lots of space folks were like, well, you know, it wouldn't happen like that. And you need to know this. And, you know, I think Andy Weir ended up saying, and then, you know, Hollywood called. And I'm sure that's how it always happens. But Yeah. <laughs> so, that, I think that is that is my biggest thing is that once I found out that I could combine this love, I mean, let's boil it down, everybody. I am a super nerd. Probably, <laughs> I'm like, I just love facts and usually talk too much as I'm doing now. And I go, oh, and you know what else? Did you also know? And then there's this other fact and then this other fact. And I've always been like that. I used to I was the nerdy kid who would like memorize sections of the encyclopedia because I wanted to have something smart to say and I wanted to make sure I said it correctly. Um, so it was that, it, that kind of like, kind of like, what is it? Um, unquenchable curiosity has always been part of me. And, you know, when I think about my parents, my dad barely finished the eighth grade, self-taught, uh, taught himself to read, taught himself to be super visually acute when he lied about his age at age 14 and told the guy he was 16 and started working at this plumbing company at age 14, really. And, um, you know, taught himself to, to even read more when he and my mom got married by getting the newspaper. My mom was a seamstress, barely graduated high school because there was, she was still picking cotton two months into her senior year of high school. And these amazing, smart, self-made people had me and went, what the heck is this? This unquenchable, thirsty, curious child who wants to go to the library and all of this stuff. And they just never said no. They always pushed me and like, all right, honey, ready? You want to go to this camp? Okay, we'll figure out a way to pay for it. So again, when you've got a solid foundation of parents who, even though they may not understand your wishes and dreams and hopes, but are willing to support them nevertheless. And then you've got great teachers along the way who notice your special quirkiness and, you know, somehow say, I'm going to encourage that. That combination uh, 
and a little bit of your, you know, on pulling up your bootstraps and saying, even if I get knocked down, I'm going to continue to try is kind of the secret sauce of getting where you want to go. And I know a lot of people didn't have those supportive parents or didn't have the voices of those teachers, and they turned that into their inspiration. My friend Eddie Gonzalez just told a story about somebody in high school who said, oh, you will never amount to anything. And now he's the head of DEI at NASA. And I was talking with him. I said, you should totally send that person a thank you note because it was the fuel in your like core stage that said, I'm going to light this thing up and do you just watch me. So I think I think whatever your experience is, use all of it to be the fuel that ignites your fire to where you want to go. Well, that actually that brings up another thing. In the course of your journey, were there any particular instances where people were treating you like you didn't belong, where you felt like, oh, there's a definite glass ceiling here? Because I know, yeah, having talked to everyone, including Dr. Proctor, yeah, it's quite common that uh, people feel that sense of imposter syndrome when they're dealing with stuff as important as space and space exploration. They feel like, oh, uh, the experts are over there. I'm just whatever. But yeah, was there ever a point where someone made you feel like that? So there, like, there are multiple answers inside this uh, question. So let's peel back a few bits of this onion at a time. And for me... For me, starting out and choosing space as that thing that would inspire. When we were, when we first started producing interstitials, basically the only thing that had to do with space was our opening animation because we got funding from uh, Vanderbilt Children's Hospital and they wanted most of the segments to be about health or science or nutrition and things that were important to them. And so it's funny, it's like, you know, I was de developing and establishing this brand called Janet's Planet and my big blue sky was still to do lots of space and much more science than we were doing, but you follow the funding that you're getting. And Along the way, as you know, as I met with people at Space Florida and I'm producing this documentary, you bet I was trembling <laughs> in my space boots because I'm going, wait a minute, now that they've chosen me, what if I don't do a good job at this? But I am very self-propelled and self-motivated. So I made sure I understood all the what I felt like was important to convey in that. But I would still show up and call, you know, and then I started getting like calls to like, hey, can you do this school show? Can you come teach this camp? Can you come teach this? And then I started to go, wait a minute, my degree is in music and theater. And while there is an element of teaching that is performance and every teacher I've ever talked to goes, oh yeah, teaching is performance because energy is never destroyed. It's only transferred. So the kids kind of like tune in to what you're giving out. But I would go, but I didn't, I didn't spend time becoming this educator or do you know what I mean? I'm not in the classroom the whole time. So I had, I had nervousness about that. And then one of the times that I was down in Austin at a conference and Pat Rawlings, an amazing uh, artist for NASA was standing there. And I have no idea what I must have just murmured or said to somebody standing near me. And I'm, walk up and, and admiring his art. And he goes, you know what you got? And I was like, I beg your pardon. He was like, you've got imposter syndrome. I just overheard you talking. He goes, but can I tell you a story? I said, sure thing. And it was that moment where you're kind of like, 
A, you're a little bit embarrassed that you got caught, <laughs> you know, like, mm -hmm. oh no, what am I about to get? And then I was like, okay, lean into this moment and don't cry, at least in front of him. And um, he was like, when I first got hired by NASA to be this artist, to basically draw what these engineers were conceiving, they would give me these ideas, these plans, and I was supposed to somehow illustrate and animate and bring it to life. And he goes, and one time I put like, I don't know, a handle on something or a little window just because it was artistic. And I thought, yeah, that's what it needs. He goes, it wasn't until that moment when the engineers came back, he's like, oh my God, Pat, that's so great. We never even thought about putting that there. And that's exactly what we should do is put something there. And he said, when that happened, he goes, I stopped feeling like an imposter. I realized that what my gifts happened to be were a gift to them because they didn't always see all the options. And he goes, and then when I would draw and I would draw freely, he goes, they would come back as, you know, as many times as not and go, what are you talking about, Pat? This is dumb. Don't put that in there. Can you redraw it? And he goes, but along the way, I developed confidence that if I felt artistically that something might exist and that it might help the process, he goes, I included it. And he goes, it became very symbiotic. He goes, so I would say that to you. If you are here, that means that you can do something that other people cannot. And he goes, my guess is, and that you can explain or communicate in such a way that makes it very human, very relatable. And he goes, let that be your superpower. And it was the grandest gift. And I've never run into Pat Rawlings at any conference since then. And I, I can't wait until I do. It was probably around 2014, 2015. And I just want to hug his neck and tell him thank you for that moment, because that probably began the disassembly of my imposter syndrome. Cause I thought, you know what? I am pretty good at taking these like high and high concepts and explaining them pretty well to kids and the general public. So yeah, that'll be my superpower. But I think that's along the way too, though, um, at a few conferences and even at this past H2M. And it was a NASA guy that I won't mention their name, but I <clears throat> came into the room as president of Explore Mars and I might have, nobody's ever like, um, nobody's ever accused me of being less than enthusiastic. So I, again, I work with kids, right? So I'm like, hey, everybody, how's it going? And he's like, oh, I remember the first time you spoke at Explore Mars. And you know how that, I don't know that that was a compliment. Mm -hmm. I don't know what he meant. I What I do know is that on one occasion back in 2016, when I spoke at Explore Mars, uh, Mac McCowie said he heard me say, hey, don't be looking at me to like inspire every next space explorer. If you want the next generation of kids to follow in your footsteps and carry out the dreams that are meaningful to you, and you're not going to be around to see those rockets on Mars, then get out there, get off your duff and go do something because I can't reach them all myself. And you can't rely on other people to do the work that you can do, only you can do. So get out there and inspire some kids. So Mac, like unbeknownst to me, that was the same year my mom passed away and I had some real reservations about even attending uh, because she just had a procedure. And in the middle of the that H2M, she had a pulmonary embolism and I'm quickly trying to fly home. But it was in 2019 that Mac approached me and goes, hey, I heard you 
And again, this is not because I said something, but I think it was this beautiful kind of thing. Mac was on his way to doing beautiful things for children, but I, I at least lit a match that day as I spoke and he went and did space outreach in Syrian refugee camps and was in just a small way, giving me a bit of uh, affirmation that what I'd said that day had made a difference to him and possibly some little kids out there. And when I left for H2M that year in 2016, I told my mom, mom, I can get a colleague to do a speech. I can say no. They know that you just had this surgery. And she was like, no, you go and do your best for the children. My mom is super Southern. And <laughs> The last thing she said to me was, have fun on your journey. Um, because I, I talked to her that Tuesday morning before I spoke um, that night or that afternoon and worked with Boy Scouts in Washington, D.C. And uh, so I, what was lovely about all of that is that I'm pretty sure that might have been the speech that the NASA guys, like, I remember when he first spoke at Explore Mars. I'm not sure he enjoyed it. And in that same vein, there was somebody else who found a nugget uh, that ignited their own passions to go out and do something. And mm. then to, to find out that because my mother said go, there might have also been meaning in me missing being at home with her. So, and I've had other people kind of like uh, at other space conferences, oh, are you always like this? Oh, that's a, that's a dandy thing to say to a grown woman. Are you always mm -hmm. like this? Indeed, I am. See you later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, yes. Indeed. So, 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 uh, so it's it, it's a it's a culmination of things. I have found amazing colleagues, men and women, and lovely people who support in absolute um enthusiasm for what I do. I found other people who tend to pat you on the head and think your IQ is less because you work with children. And so for them, you know, I'm not their I'm not their brand or their people and they are not mine. And that would be what I would say to anybody out there. The moment that you feel some real, you know, kind of interesting energy coming toward you, you have to make a choice. I'm going to stand here, be true to myself, prove you wrong, and that's how I'm going to change the world. And oh, and even if you can't be proved wrong because you're so certain you're right, I'm still going to be over here changing the world for the better in the way that I do it, that a way that is meaningful to me. And so good day. Mm -hmm. And that to me is my best response to anybody who's ever sort of uh, patted me on the head and oh, or when they go, what you do is so cute. <clears throat> and my response oh. is like, oh yeah, it's like uh, what I do is not cute. It's invaluable and important and necessary. And when my students are walking on the moon and Mars, you can tell me how cute it's been. I mean, I say that with no humility. I started out mm -hmm. having a bit of some, but when it comes to, when it comes to loving my kids to their inherent magnificence. Um, I'm pretty good at that one. So mm -hmm. I feel strongly on, about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, uh, that, that really resonates there. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you yourself, it's like, did you, was it a post you put on there at some point about you couldn't believe maybe that you had gotten kind of mansplained or space oh, God. too? 
Yes, absolutely. And and yeah, that does happen. I, I found when it comes to people who leave comments, they're they're they can yeah, they can be divided into various categories. They're the people who respond to a title without reading at all. Mm-hmm. Usually, yeah, and I found that one one thing that's very annoying about that. It's like, well, the t- the title is a question, yeah, but it's rhetorical. Okay, you are not being asked to answer this. The article answers it. Thank you for coming by. But other <laughs> other times, there are always those people who want to leave comments that are boiled down. They are. I know more about this than you do, or I'm more up to date on this than you are. And it's it's rare that it's actually been a colleague who's done that. But yeah. There was a succession of people who left comments as like, hang on, did you actually read this? A, B, don't see what that has to do with this. And C, I felt the proverbial hand patting my head and thought, oh my God, is this, and and it just, it dawned on me. It's like, I've seen all this before, but is this what you women go through on a regular basis? Guys doing this to you. um, Even this past Sunday morning, it's like for the last year and a half, I've, been asked to be on CNN and apparently the, you know, the weekend anchors like my commentary. They like, again, my superpower, which is to hopefully explain, you know, concepts fairly, um, fairly well for the space curious and everything. And they were like, well, we've got an astronaut in the second hour. So we'll leave the uh, kind of like more technical uh, discussion to him. Now, granted, it was Commander Chris Hadfield and he's amazing. Sure thing. Mm -hmm. But the assumption was, so to that good end, I made sure that I threw in a little bit of technical detail because I wanted to prove just because I... You know, just because I'm a girl doesn't mean that I can't explain some of those technical concepts. No, I'm not a rocket scientist. And, you know, I think sometimes, too, this is the other thing that everybody thinks, oh, you have to. Like, I had a student this summer, like a 14-year-old. He was brilliant and on the spectrum and lovely. But he was like, if you don't have an astronomy degree, how can you possibly teach me (laughs) <laughs> I'm like, because I'm, I am really super curious and know a lot of stuff. So I'm sure you know a lot of stuff. Could we find a way that we might learn things together? But when you talk about people just randomly making comments, I mean, even me the other day, there's somebody on Instagram. I just, I, I've started where, where it, when it's really not helpful and it's just somebody wanting to pontificate about all they know. I just don't respond. But mm-hmm. probably a few months back, I may have even told you this on social media or in a message. CNN had asked me on about the topic of space debris, and it's a huge concern. And if we don't figure out that here in the next little while, by the time we can actually go to Mars, can we even blast a rocket there because we can't get out of low Earth orbit without something, you know, clinging into our rocket? And so, you know, I had like some Lego pieces and I was talking about it's like they're microscopic down to maybe, I don't know, like less than 0.4 tenths of a centimeter. Anyway, I had my whatever parameters there were. I knew them and was quoting the quote correctly. I just happened to have Legos. So this guy goes, oh, do you not know what the word microscopic? You know, if you'd had a donut laying around, would you have used that? And I'm like, dude. I like, it's not like I got space debris, you know, hanging around that I can show as a real example. So what it was just, I was like, well, how would you have explained it? And there again, no response. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. I think 
in the land of those of us who put ourselves out there on social media, in a public platform, I think at some point you just, A, growing old is a, is kind of good in that regard. You really do have a, an ability to not care as much about what people may think of you. But also you have to do that for your own sanity. Otherwise, it really digs in. People get super personal. Mm-hmm. People get super personal about your looks. Like, I will go on the record. I try to look 29.2 like I'm from Mars. That's that's my age on Mars is yeah. 29.2. But here on the old Earth years, I'm 55, heading into 56. And, uh, you know, I've had people go, well, you're really too old to be uh, on TV talking about space. Oh. And you're going, wait a minute, I'm just I'm just hitting my stride knowing what I'm doing. So so I think it's like because you can kind of be an older guy talking uh-huh. about space or science. But you mean I can't be if I all of a sudden admit that I'm 55. So, you know, Dr. Sarah Lynn Markin, I've talked a bit about that, is that, again, can we can we ever bring this idea of about like, hey, there's some people who've walked before us and what can we learn from them and have this beautiful intergenerational kind of, con- you know, talks and and where age doesn't matter, that it's really the knowledge and the experience and the energy and the passion that we want to kind of communicate with. But it's, I will say this, there have been some interesting moments um, in my career and in my path to being somebody that is respected in the space industry but I've also had tremendous humans who have been guides and mentors and advocates for me uh, along the way, and none better than the folks at uh, Explore Mars. Chris Carberry, uh, the CEO of uh, Explore Mars, has just been a tremendous friend and advocate. Uh, Vice President Joe Cassidy of Explore Mars, uh, Rick Zucker, uh, so many fabulous people uh, have said, hey, we we like what you do. And uh, Again, many, many women, Artemis Westenberg, Holly Malier, uh, golly, I'm leaving people out, Melinda Benson, so many great people that have said, hey, you know what, let's uh, let's band together and make sure that we are all in this together. Vera Mulyani. So it's like, I think that's Alison Renault. all of these people are occurring to me. So I think that's the important thing. Find, find your space peeps. Find where that feels good to you. Know that you hopefully uh, will find respite there. If if not, keep looking for that group that is yours because there's a lot to do and there's a lot of outreach to do. And Explore Mars would love to have you. So if you're interested at all (laughs) in finding your space peeps, I'll invite everybody to come check us out over exploremars.org. Yeah, do that. I did. <laughs> a while back, and yeah, and that's actually that's that's how. Um, actually, no, I met Vera before that, but she was one of the people who welcomed me in there, and you too. So yeah, yeah I will like, say you'll feel right at home, folks. Do you really feel that way? That's what I want. I'm really proud of that part about Explore Mars. It's it's not a huge organization. You know, we had our first in-person Human to Mars Summit back in May. But uh, I got to tell you, I, I truly believe at the, at the heart of our organization is the humanity that goes 
into all of these innovations. And I'm really, I'm really proud of what we do and how we treat people. So I hope that you, I hope that's really something that you felt, Matt. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it goes right back to what you, what you said earlier there, which I'm totally uh, in bylining, which is about, yes, the power of space to unify, to bring people together and, and really bring out the best in us. So, yeah, it always bothers me when people speak out of ignorance about these things or will try to tell those who are involved in, in this sort of thing how they're doing it wrong. But that's that's a whole nother that, thing there. You know, that <laughs> yeah. that is that tends to be life. And I think that kind of resilience and ability to circumvent uh, and navigate some of that and to stand up for it, to stand up for injustice. Uh, one of the things, too, that, you know, with Janet's Planet and with uh, Explore Mars, we really have been attempting to pay attention to diversity, equity, inclusion. I'm proud to say that I think our conference is one of the most diverse. We pay a lot of attention to who's on that stage, making sure that representation is happening across all all kinds of things, race, gender, religion, uh, country, you know what I mean? It's like wherever, how many ever layers deep we can go to that. Uh, we still have tons of work to do. I think it's important that we say it out loud and say, you know what space industry we can do better. We need to open the doors wider for all to be included and to feel like there is space for them. But, you know, I, I'm proud to say that it's like, yeah, there's maybe I watching my own parents be entirely self-made and self-taught was really truly a gift because it's like, that's where you sort of learn how to go, you know what? Yeah. That wasn't the nicest comment I've ever heard about myself, but mm -hmm. I'll dust it off. And yeah, the best, that best revenge is like, how do you like me now? It's like, I'm not even the big fan of that song or the artist as much, but it's like, you know what? Forget what people say, just continue to do the work. And then when it starts to shine, go, oh, I always knew I'd get here. Oh, sorry you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I, I would also say to to people who have ever expressed that kind of attitude towards you, I'd say be thankful people like her exist. Otherwise, the public would have to deal with you. You'd be responsible. <laughs> right? You'd be responsible for your own PR. And frankly, that is the reason why space is, is often seen as having bad PR. It's because some people just are not approachable, accessible, or interesting. <laughs> well, and I think to, <laughs> to that point, here's what I'm finding more and more is that in this world, as we realize how neurodiverse we all are at mm -hmm. this point, I would dare say that in some regard, we are all somewhere on that spectrum of, you know, learning and, and mm -hmm. intelligence and emotional stuff. I think we all tend to have some interesting idiosyncrasies. And so when I open my, maybe I should say it this way, when I expand my heart and arms wide enough to go, everybody has their own interesting thing. And to that end, there was a moment when I was speaking a few years ago about mentorship that this guy came up to me 
And it would have been easy to write him off and just think that he was being kind of a punk because he's like, well, I don't know how to do what you do. And I was like, what do you mean? He was like, well, I'm an engineer and I think linearly. And he goes, I don't think in this abstract way. And I was like, okay, so how would you explain this? And we got into this conversation and he said something. I was like, well, I just use a bowl of cereal and blah, blah, blah. And he was like, he goes, I can't do it. He goes, I can't think that way. And I was like, well, I don't know. I wish I could help you. I said, because I said, I don't know that I can think in that linear form that you do, but maybe between us, we could learn something from each other. And as he walked off, he walked off a little dejectedly. And it was a grand moment for me in learning just people that, again, I could have talked about what a punk he had been all day, but then I realized he had not ever had that opportunity to maybe take that acting class or he, he quickly people went, hey, you're the smart kid with all the science and all the algorithms and all the math going through you. You don't need to take any of that creative stuff. And so I think we rob people of that opportunity to learn how to communicate or have kind of like some emotional uh, creative intelligence when we when we don't let people be all of that. And so sometimes people just fall into these categories or their own imposter. They may be so like well academically and have a thousand things, you know, alphabet soup after their name, but they, if they can't explain it to a group of children, what did Einstein say? If you can't explain it simply, <laughs> you simply don't understand it. And yes. so it's like, here's my, my two cents of how best to, appreciate anybody is just go, hmm, I bet they have an interesting way of looking at life and it may not at all be how I approach it. How can I attempt to understand how they see things? And at that moment, I might become their friend long enough for them to go, oh, well, I didn't see it your way either, but now I kind of like, I don't know that I'll ever be able to do it, but that's cool. But that's what I found more often than not, that sometimes the like disagreeable guy, there was a guy who is the like world's expert on the Orion Nebula at Vanderbilt University. And I was like, hey, Dr. Bob, let's go to coffee. You want to like, and he was a grumpy puss when I met him at Starbucks. And I was like, can I buy you a cup of coffee? No, I don't want to be indebted to you. And I'm like, all right, Dr. Bob, fine. <laughs> Yeah. So we we had coffee and I'm asking him about his work, astronomy. And he was like, well, you know what, Janet, I kind of don't see the point of what you do because only 1% of students actually take astronomy in college. And at that point, I was like, listen, listen, you grumpy expert. I was like, you know what, Dr. Bob, you need me. You know why you need me? Because you need research dollars. And what? On the off chance that I happen to inspire the guy who owns the trucking company in West Tennessee, but he was like, you know what? I got EGADs of money. What do I do with it? You know what? I really love space. That guy's looking at stuff from the Orion Nebula. I love that constellation. I'll give them money. I said, so maybe it's not the C and D students that are going to wind up in your astronomy class or wind up on your astronomy team. But how about they become the rich people who decide to give money to your research? That's why you need me. And that's why it's important for everybody to be space curious and to be science literate. 
And at that moment, Matt, that dude has been so kind. He will respond to any email that I got him where, you know, it's like money talks because even Mm -hmm. a researcher doing great work needs that, that people get into those worlds of like, this is the only way that it works. And I just continually keep pushing the envelope for kids and parents and educators and space industry folks to go. There is a way that we can really, I think, upend a lot of the ways we've been teaching and broaden how kids get excited and maybe even push education forward. I'm working on a chapter in a book that Explore Mars is going to put out, and it's all about how education might look on Mars. And I've spent a lot of time talking to people, just kind of like imagining that. And think about it. What will you need to know on Mars, Matt? What would you need to most know if you're, I don't know, if you're four years old, eight years old? And that's on Mars years. So yeah, like, well, that's a very good question. Because it's like, it's going to be more important for you to know how to know if like your carbon monoxide or your carbon dioxide is too high and your oxygen levels are low. You're going to need some hand dexterity to be able to crank a switch or turn off a certain knob there in the habitat. You're going to have to know when there are beeping sounds that there's some other chemistry going on that you need to pay attention to. So you will teach on Mars, what you most need to know, what is most valuable and what will contribute most to survival. So imagine that we started doing some of those things here on Earth. We get rid of the infernal testing because all they're asking kids to do is memorize facts and take a test. This summer, this amazing kid on the spectrum, 12 years old, goes, man, I wish school was more like this. And I was like, what do you mean? And she was like, Well, at school, they just make us memorize facts and take a test and they think that's learning. But here, we're actually learning how to build stuff. And I think that seems to be a lot more important. I mean, I never even thought I could be an engineer until this camp. And you're going, I wish I could have been taping that, right? (laughs) So, because I know we need to teach kids how to innovate and how to create and how to communicate and how to collaborate. And at that point, then we can move this thing forward. But it's like we continually do the same things we've done for the last 150 years, sage on the stage and test till our eyeballs fall out to what good end so that our county can get the funding like the, like the numbers matter, because I will tell you kids who don't test well, it doesn't mean they're not intelligent. It just means they don't test well. They got test anxiety or it's like they, that's not the kind of learner they are. They need visual things. They need kinesthetic things. And I feel always like I'm standing, stamping my feet on my soapbox when I say this, but stop the infernal testing. Kids right now after COVID are sadly behind in their reading and comprehension and writing and multiplication, especially in those elementary grades. And unless they had an amazing support system during that time and teachers like we're doing an impeccable job, every teacher in this country on this planet deserves like five vacations to the Maldives and bonbons and everything else because they were stellar. And even then during COVID, there were just ways that you couldn't reach all the kids in the best ways. So we need to, there's, there's going to be a, there's a learning gap there and we've got to address that. And so anyway, 
I don't know if anybody's listening who wants to <laughs> hear to any of my crazy ideas, but again, my ideas alone. I have too many teacher friends who have lost hope and lost a lot of interest because the last several years have worn them out. And whether that's COVID and hybrid and online and all the things they were expected to be able to do, uh, and then their own safety when in light of, um, you know, some things that happened in Uvalde and other places. So it's, it's an interesting time, and I think it'll be very interesting to see what education looks like in the next five or 10 years. But I do think turning it, turning it on its head and thinking about how we would teach things on Mars will be vastly different from what will, how we teach here on Earth could be a way to sort of upset the Earth-bound education model and help us start thinking about what do we need to teach for survival that's necessary, that's innovative, that gets them being the great scientists and creators of the 21st century. Well, you know, as a former educator, <laughs> I can so relate. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just, I became a science communicator full-time and only back in 2015. So before that I was teaching and yeah, <laughs> this I'd say, yep, this woman gets it. <laughs> and, so what, uh, grade, what grade did you teach? Well, I was, I went to school to teach high school students about uh, history and English literature and uh, social sciences, but I ended up doing a lot of early education towards the end of my career there. So a lot of elementary and yeah, with a, an indigenous education board that was just north of where we lived. Yeah, very, uh, very interesting times, very fascinating, but the passion, you know, and just sort of feeling that trickle away uh, over time just because of various issues was definitely a problem. Another thing I would say, Vera and I were actually working on this very question. What is school going to look like on Mars as well as other, every other aspect of life? Yeah. We have to talk further and offline. <laughs> I'd love to know your thoughts or send send you yeah. the like the beginning of this chapter. I've written about 3,500 words and there's so much more and I'm sure I have not included. I would love to quote you and Vera, get your thoughts and put you and include you in this chapter because I do think it's important to think about because, you know, they're just, we may have to teach more, you know, chemistry and sciences and super early and we'll be, they'll be expected to know that because they're you know, will they have an AI tutor? Uh, will they have like a constant, they'll have to have either a robotic or some kind of mechanism that they wear all the time that that's being monitored so that safety is of the utmost. I mean, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's interesting because it's like, you know, there's nothing better than getting your hands on and learning, learning as you're doing. And uh, that's, that's been the thing as I've worked more with kids and kind of like every year I learned something and how to do something better with kids. And in the last many years, it's like I like when I'm doing a, a presentation and maybe I got 60 minutes, 75 minutes or I'm doing a camp. I'm going to only talk for about 10 minutes, 10 or 12, 15 minutes. And then we're going to get into the hands on activity because 
as they're building, we can keep learning. I can keep going, oh, and what about this? Have you thought about this? Would you like to look that up? Would you like to know more about it? Would you want me to shut up so you can just build and then you can tell me about your great creativity? And they will go further and farther and then they'll they'll come and know. And sometimes I don't and I'm like, oh my gosh, you're a genius. So that to me is always putting the kid in that power position. Uh, they're their own best advocate for learning. They figure things out on their own. And then when they figure it out on their own, they're empowered. Like all of a sudden it's like, oh, I didn't even know I could do that. You mean I can do that? Of course you can do that. You have permission to be creative and innovative. Go right for it. And I'm afraid that sometimes we don't always, and I get it. It's like, again, I mean, absolute no disrespect to teachers in the classroom. There are so many crazy things they have to contend with and paperwork and reports and all of these assessments and things. But I know their heart wants to just open up wide the doors for this kind of innovation. And I really wish the powers that would be, the powers that be would take a listen to the mm -hmm. teachers. Oh yeah. Oh, definitely. That funding, <laughs> yes. Funding and diversity in education, right? Uh, yeah. I think those are two things that are definitely are worth fighting for. And that, well, I, for one, I'm, I'm going to make a point of bringing that up as much as possible until we start seeing the results. Uh, well, yeah, well, it, it, takes, it takes a village, right? And it's, oh, it, yes. And it's like, they're amazing people out there. It's like for my friends and, you know, at NSS, like Anita Gale doing the Space Settlement Design Challenge. You've got Sharon Hagel uh, that's, you know, doing amazing things. Like one of my students has got, earned, wrote an essay and is going to get to fly in microgravity because of Sharon Hagel's foundation. You've got Holly Malier doing Cities in Space. You've got Jancy doing Sci Art Exchange. You've got Nicole Stott doing Space for Art. So many, and I'm leaving out so many people, Steve Sherman in Cape Town, South Africa with Living Maths, Yerush Seaman in Pakistan doing incredible space and science outreach there. And all over the place, and I'm, again, I'm starting to think of all tons of other names. And then you've got like folks like Vera who are doing it on the collegiate and young adult level. And, you know, there's just, there's so many great people doing these things that, you know, we're, we, I'm constantly in conversations with people about how we connect, um, you know, all of these entities in such a way that we become a consortium and a bigger kind of influencer because we're all joined together saying, knock, knock, space education has to be in curriculum. It has to be on the table. We have to rethink how we do some things that so that so that kids are empowered. And ultimately, at the end of the day, Matt, what's it all about? It's about this next generation of students and the generation after that finding their way in such an empowered way that, again, we're not holding them back because of old ways of thinking or old ways of doing. And uh, that's my greatest hope. I just... For me, it's all about the kids. It's all about making sure they're standing and doing and being all that they can be and reaching for the stars and getting there. And that's what I care about most. Mm -hmm. Oh, God. Yeah. Well, and, you know, having had the privilege of being on an episode of uh, Janet's Planet and speaking to the kids that she engages with, I could say, excellent job. <laughs> <You know>? Yes. <laughs> And yes, uh, I mean, God, those kids that were on there and 
just how bright and they definitely make you feel encouraged about the future, right? <laughs> Giving us hope well, for the future. Well, that's what I would say to everybody. Mm -hmm. It's like if you are disappointed or disillusioned at all with the world as it stands, I want you to go find a kid and I want mm -hmm. you to talk to them and I want yeah. you to ask what they feel about things or I want you to make something with them or I want you to teach them something or let them teach you something or I want you to spend a long time like bring along a a Ziploc thing of Legos and see what you can build because I'm telling you kids are resilient. They're magnificent. They think in incredible ways that my brain could not conceive of and it will encourage you. And if you meet a kid that you go, Oh my gosh, they, you know, and you ask a lot of questions and you go, wow, they need some help. Be that person to help because I'm telling you, Every time I'm around a crowd of kids and I taught six weeks of camps this summer, it was almost golly over 300 kids. And there's some brilliant geniuses out there who are seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, and they will, they will make you believe in a bright, bright future. So, uh, anytime you start to get a little, you know, stop watching the news, go find, go find a kid, your niece, your nephew, uh, somebody in the neighborhood, you can sit down and kind of like uh, go, Hey, let's talk about space. I think you'll find yourself encouraged. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Get off <laughs> social media and start talking to some of these kids, you know, one-on-one -on -one or in small groups. Or, oh yeah. They got a lot to say and uh, it is really wonderful to see, you know, the next generation especially given what they're going to be witnessing, taking an interest in, in space and space exploration, isn't it? Well, think about this. It's like, I think about if I like, let's go back to our grandparents. Mm -hmm. So my grandparents grew up during the depression. It's like, you know, recycling. They certainly understood that because I don't think my grandmother threw much of anything away. Um, but it's like from getting their first telephone to the first TV to indoor plumbing. All of these things were like incredible inventions, right? And then you go through and then my parents experience, you know, VHS tapes and, <laughs> and then you've got the internet and then you've got computers that, and, you know, even the guy at IBM at one point said that, oh, I think there'll only be, you know, about five personal computers that'll be needed. I mean, he got it severely wrong. And so when you even think about, so from your grandparents to my parents, you know, who like were, if they typed, they typed on a typewriter, not a computer or some dot matrix thing to like, you know, sending messages via your phone and all of the technology that we have and artificial intelligence. It's like just to think that what's happened in the last 50, 60 years and think about how by orders of magnitude, it exponentially things are happening now. It's like what kids know now, it's like, it'll be, oh, Jan Jan, <laughs> that's my grandma name, Jan Jan, <laughs> did you know? And they'll be, they'll be as frustrated with me as I sometimes am with my dad about going, dad, here's how you send a text message. So <laughs> it's like, it's going to be incredible. And the students of today are the ones who are going to usher in, even in, better, hopefully a better and newer era of science space and hopefully some political policy and, you know, global change where 
Mm-hmm. Yep. I'll just get along, Matt. Can we all just get along and do good I, things for kids and advance yeah. That's I all I need. So. I hope so. <laughs> I'll, I'd like to add a, a cleaner energy because, man, the summers here are getting uh, frighteningly hot and, uh, well, that's happening everywhere on the planet, so that too. And yet another thing uh, that I love about space, right? Space, space, solar power, space elevators, all that stuff. Like, oh, we could be running on clean, efficient, 24-7, 365 renewable energy. Right. Another, yeah, another, another, another day. Another episode. <laughs> yes. yes. Well, thank you so much for coming out here. Um, I know that, yes, you, you've had a very busy time. And, uh, you know, I honestly, uh, I'm, I'm very happy that you... They, you know, found time and made time to come talk. Uh, you know what? Yeah. Now, I want to say just thank you for the grace. It's like, uh, I will tell you that teaching full time in space camp in my Janus Planet Astronaut Academies in the summertime was it's it's a full body proposition, mind, body, heart and spirit and a very tired body. And then, um, you know, my dad. My dad's health, he'll be 80 soon, and it, he continues to have an interesting um, roller coaster ride with various things. And, you know, that always comes first. So I just want to say thank you for the grace. Uh, I'm sure I look quite like I was a crazy person rescheduling so much. So thank you for the grace for that. No, just busy. I, I know a little bit of what that's like, but yeah, for individuals like yourself, it's like, Take what you know, multiply that by about ten. Be thankful they're talking. <laughs> be thankful they're talking to you at all. Oh no, no, no! You are you are a superhero in this industry as well, with all of the great journalism and things that you uh, assist with getting out into the world. And we're all grateful for that. I think the last thing I just want to say to anybody out there listening is. If you're a painter, if you're an artist, if you're a soccer player, if you're whatever your thing is, you don't just have to be the one thing. There's nothing monolithic about this life. It is entirely possible for you to be an entire galaxy of things. Um, Matt, you mentioned that you had done a bit of research and found out some things about me that you may not mm -hmm. have known. So, yeah. um, so you might hear my voice sometimes on um, a commercial on the radio. You might see me in an Ohio lottery spot, or you might, the coming this Christmas, you'll see me in a Christmas movie called Mary and Gay. I play the mom, Lucille, trying to get the high school sweethearts back together. I'll know probably in September whether it's going to be on Hulu or Netflix, but it is coming to a streaming service near you. Yeah. So part of part of one of the things that I still do, uh, even amidst all of the space education and outreach that I do, and this is for me and me alone. For years, I um, co-hosted a show called Tennessee's Wild Side on public television. I was hired to do things on camera. Super fun. I love it. And one of the things that I, so that I stay sane and my cup stays full, one of the ways that I keep my cup full is that in the last probably two or three weeks, I've sent out about 12 auditions. I know that one audition got sent up to the producers at NBC. I'm not allowed to say what that's for. It's looking like it may not, it may come to naught, but just the fact that they thought my audition was good enough to pass on up the chain, I'll take it. But that keeps my cup full because there's still 
in me, that creative girl who loves to perform, who loves music, art, and theater. And if I get a little while to do that, then I come full-hearted, full to the brim, standing in my deep gladness to uh, to work with kids and do the space outreach. So if you're out there going, oh, I, I don't have enough of this, eh, throw away all of the supposed to, have tos, this is what it's supposed to look like, come to the party, bring your own special set of awesome and it uh, if you are super good at your own brand of uh, special awesome and you know what your superpower is, my guess it's needed somewhere in the space industry. Well, that's good advice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. You know, we need all types. It takes all types. And yeah, the idea that you need uh, that piece of paper or whatever, it's like, no. Passion. Not always. Yeah, yeah no. It's like if you can take the nose and wait till your yes and keep pressing on. But I've, mm -hmm. we've seen that over and over again. Like I said, Dr. Cyan Proctor or mm -hmm. Haley Arsenault. It's like the first, you know, uh, amputee or you know, prosthetic in space. Uh, we're seeing we're seeing all of these amazing things happen from William Shatner in his 90s to Wally Funk uh, at 81, almost 82, going to space after an entire lifetime of that mm -hmm. dream. So yeah. I think I think that's what we all need to hold sacred is that it is possible. And if we just press on and, you know, the other thing is, and I talked a little bit about this at the uh, Human to Mars Summit. I would also love for people to really embrace the Native American Five Nations principle, um, where we talk about kind of like that seven generations mindset, that whatever we do today, how will it affect seven generations into the future? Not just seven seconds into the future, seven minutes, seven months, but when we think about anything that we're doing in space, in innovation, in science, how will this affect not only today, but seven generations from now. And I think that's a profound way to honor our elders and our native ancestors to think about, they were really encouraging us to that think of the future, not just, not just the now and the present and what's most accessible. So as we think about climate change and the future of space and sustainability and space debris and space you know, debris mitigation, those are all things that we need to be really embracing now and thinking about how do we, how do we solve some of this, not just for now, but for seven generations from now is another good idea for us to put on our thinking caps and ruminate about mm -hmm. and actually do more than ruminate, but actually take some action towards. I have been told more than once, uh, are you always like this? Yes, I am always hopeful. I am always optimistic and I am always keenly hoping for a good and beautiful and kind uh, humanity that does great work here on earth as well as in space. And that I think is the perfect closing byline right there. <laughs> and uh, you know, yeah. And I join you in all that there too, and I hope we can have another chat like this. In the meantime, this has been Stories from Space. I'm your host, Matt Williams, reminding you to check out Janet Ivey's website at janetsplanet.com and to keep an eye out for her upcoming movie. Also be sure to tune in next week where I sit down with Professor Alex Ellery of Carleton University, Go Ravens, and we discuss a subject near and dear to both of our hearts, 
von Neumann probes, a subject that has deep implications for human space exploration and the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Until then, thank you for listening. Have a nice day. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Stories from Space podcast with Matthew Williams. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Thank you.